Hey, this is Adrian Hernandez, and welcome to the NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speaker and ask some of the tough and interesting questions you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of our Grand Rounds content can be found at rethinkingclinicaltrials.org. Thanks for joining. Hi, I'm Adrian Hernandez, a moderator for Collaboratory Grand Rounds, and today we're here with David Bulware, who will be reflecting on a recent Grand Rounds presentation entitled Lessons from Virtual Trials in a Time of Pandemic, the Minnesota Hydroxychloroquine Experience. So David, uh, thanks for joining us and doing this. Happy to be here, Adrian. Thank you for the invitation. Well, David, uh, it was just terrific to hear what you all did um, to address the uh, pandemic. Uh, can you take us back in time a bit and, uh, and kind of reconstruct the events that led you to developing the suite of trials around hydroxychloroquine? Yeah, so I was, um, you know, I, I was actually at an NIH study section uh, in D.C., uh, sort of the end of or beginning of, of March. And um, I'd emailed someone at NIAD, and I, um, this was on, Mar on like Sunday, um, March 8th, and I was uh, like flying back to Minnesota and uh, emailed and asked, you know, hey, are, is NIH doing anything with outpatient trials as far as early treatment or post-exposure prophylaxis? And, and um, at the time, they were, you know, trying to get, get up the, um, the adaptive design uh, remdesivir trial, and they said, no, you know, they're focused on the hospitalized patients. And... Um, you know, the CROI HIV conference um, had been canceled and was a virtual conference. And so my team was supposed to, to be in Boston for the, the CROI meeting from that Monday through Thursday. And so I was sitting in the airport and I was thinking like, hmm, we should do something about this. And so we flew back and um, and the next, you know, I emailed people that night, my team members and said, hey, let's meet at nine o'clock and um, let's, 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 we're going to do something about COVID. And so I, I wasn't, Totally sure what I wanted to do, but I knew that hydroxychloroquine had some in vitro activity against SARS, and it was available. It's cheap. It's off patent. Um, and said, so, you know, let's, you know, you know, basically that Monday morning, I gathered my team together, uh, which normally does a bunch of cryptococcal meningitis research in Africa, but they were all supposed to be at Croy, and they all had free time, uh, in essence, because you know their their schedules were blocked off. And so we decided to do a po we started with the post exposure prophylaxis uh, trials. And you had some prior experience uh, dealing with uh, pandemics. So how did that influence what you did here? You know, I've worked in Africa for about fifteen years now, and um, you know, I helped out with the Ebola trial in uh, West Africa um, back in gosh, what two thousand fifteen. And um, you know, with that, I, I didn't do a whole lot, but I, I went to Liberia. And at the time, like the week I, I was there for like, like I was supposed to be there for two weeks, but I was there for a week and like nothing was going on. Um, but they were sort of in the process of still getting the trial up and running. And so they had a U.S. protocol that was written. And I basically spent the week mostly just sort of writing, you know, rewriting the protocol so it could actually be implemented in Africa and writing the consent forms and doing a bunch of sort of work on, on that Ebola trial. And I, I didn't actually do a whole lot, but I did. I mean, I, I mean, I helped write the protocol, which is a big, big chunk and write the consent form. So, um, but that was, yeah, I kind of helped out before. And, and um, so I had some connections with the, you know, the NIED staff and, and others um, who I knew. And so that's, that's why I could ask some of them a little bit. Were there lessons from uh, kind of watching uh, what had happened or transpired around Ebola and kind of the delays in trials and, 
issues yeah, around I, that that influenced what you did yeah, here? I, I think the classic, you know, the classic, you know, which the Ebola, you know, the 2015 Ebola, you know, showed is that like by the time sort of the research, you know, community gets gets organized and gets funding and gets stuff on the ground and gets ready to go, like, boom, like the outbreak's almost over. And so that was the case where the trial, you know, we enrolled our first patient and it was like, uh, gosh, was it early March of, of 2015, you know, towards the very end of the epidemic. And they were able to enroll enough patients to get some answers. But, um, you know, it was six, it took, you know, five, six months to get the trial up and running. And so I sort of knew that, like, if you go through the traditional routes of like, oh, let's let's write, a, let's, you know, write a grant proposal and try to get funding, like, like that, that just was not going to work. And, and that um, clearly, early in March, when, when there was community spread happening, it was very apparent, I think, to most infectious disease docs and most just physicians who are paying attention, like, oh, this is this is going to get bad quickly, which is exactly what happened. And so, you know, once there was community spread happening, it was just like this was was terrible because I was kind of ignoring it in January and in February. It was kind of, you know, it was happening in Asia and it was sort of far, far off. And, um, you know, but by the time the community spread was happening, I was like, oh, this is this is bad. So and and you kind of stand around like, oh, gosh, someone sh- someone should do something about this. And, and, that, and then you realize, well. Maybe that should be that should be me. That should be us. And so that was the 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 attitude that we took. That yes, someone should do something about this. And NIH and BARDA and the federal government were clearly not really fo- focused on outpatient management. And if if you think about like how are you going to change the epidemic, it's either by post exposure prophylaxis or early treatment to prevent hospitalization. Um, because the problem is not I you know the the people with mild illness that get a little bit sick and recover. That's not a problem. But if but the people that get hospitalized and in New York City, clearly in early March, you know, the hospitals were getting overwhelmed. And so if you get sort of breakdown of the healthcare system and you can't get, you know, people are overwhelming the hospitals, um, that's a problem. And so that's what we tried to focus on because, uh, you know, there are lots of people working on lots of things, but most of the trials really were focused on inpatient hospitalized treatment. And so we thought like, boom, let, we, we should do a trial and, we're going to run it. And at the time, you know, I had a little bit of money salted away from various, you know, whatever talks I'd given or per DMs for this and that. And so I had a little bit of research funds um, put away. And so it's like, we're just, we're going to run the trial and we didn't have much money, but we're going to do it. And, and so how can you do a trial, you know, for, you know, a high quality trial that gets, gets you a clinical answer, but yet also when you don't have a lot of money to do it. Right. So maybe talk a little bit about the so-called engineering requirements. So it, it sounded like from the um, Ebola experience, you, you knew like the traditional systems wouldn't work, the, uh, that it wouldn't address a, a, the pandemic when they need to. And then uh, there are resource limitations. So what were the kind of guiding principles you had in you and your team in developing this? Yeah, so I mean, we're we're really familiar with you know FDA IND trials, and we do trials for pick meningitis and TB meningitis now, and so we're very familiar with, with the traditional sort of clinical trial model. You know, even when we're working in African resource limited areas, the paperwork and the documentation is, is very you know similar. But in this case, we weren't you know we weren't going for FDA approval. Like it's already existing medicine, and so the question was really, does it work? And so we decided to really design a you know, sort of a patient reported outcomes would be the, I think, the technical term for this, of a patient report outcome measure. And so for post-exposure prophylaxis, it's, you know, fairly simple because it's really, you you take a, a healthy person that has no symptoms, and the question is, do they get sick? And if they get sick, you know, what, what symptoms do they have? And so it's a pretty 
obvious endpoint. You say, well, they could get sick of other causes, but you know, you you live in the real world, and so you know the the fundamental question is, does it decrease illness and does it decrease disease? And at the time, you know, we thought you know that people would actually have access to testing. Um, this is you know back in early March, and testing was was really problematic, as everyone remembers, but it was expanding. And so we thought, well, this this has got to get better. Um, but it really didn't for quite a while, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, like, you know, if people get sick and do they have symptoms, do you have headache, do you have cough, do you have fever? You know, patients can, you know, people can say like that, especially if you start healthy. Um, and so that's kind of how we, you know, we designed it first, the post-exposure prophylaxis trial, you know, focused on that because it's like, this is something that people can report there were a lot of healthcare workers that we reported. And so if, you know, a healthcare, you know, worker can, who starts out healthy can tell you if they have a cough or not. And so it's not, you know, terribly, you know, complicated. Obviously, if you have lab testing, that's great. You know, we would have liked to do more lab testing, but at the same time, you know, like the perfect can't be the enemy of the good. Right. So, um, no, that, I guess that's uh, very true. And, and, uh, how did things go? Like what, what was it like, uh, getting things, uh, started up? Well, it was a little bit crazy because, you know, we have, a, you know, I've got about a, about a dozen people that work, work with us, uh, work with me. I shouldn't say me. I mean, we all work together and it's really a great team, team experience. And we've, you know, worked on, you know, neglected diseases where it's, it's us doing the clinical trials in Africa. There's no big pharmaceutical company that's sponsoring stuff and, you know, a bunch of people do the work. It's like, you got to do the work yourself. And so, you know, having done a number of trials, I was familiar with what needs to get done and, and so were most of my team members. And so we rapidly wrote a protocol. We submitted to the like rapidly, meaning like in less than 24 hours. Um, and we use Google Drive and sort of, you know, Google Docs. And so you've got multiple people working on the same file at the same time to, to work through things fairly quickly. Um, you know, we submitted to the IRB. We, you know, I've done FDI and D um, submissions before. And so I filled out that paperwork and FedEx it off. Um, we, you know, started a, you know, how are we going to collect the database? And so we started a red cap, uh, database, uh, database and survey sort of system to do that. Um, you know, we kind of worked through a lot of the, the regulatory processes and the logistical processes, talked to pharmacy, got bought the medicine. That was probably one of the biggest stresses, like, is there enough medicine? And so when we, when we first, when I first bought it just out of my own funds, I think it was, you know, it was like, it was like 50 cents a pill or something like that. And like two days later, when I bought it, it was like a dollar fifty a pill, and so it was like, ooh, wow! Like, like it was sort of rapidly increased in, in, in price, and then rapidly there was a shortage thereafter. But we at least had a supply for our trial, and so um, yeah, it was um, a little bit crazy. But you know, in the span of eight days, we kind of worked through all the things you needed to do to get a trial up and running. Well, uh, you know, you um, were able to do a, a number of studies in this space. I uh, hear what were key lessons learned. Well, one of the things that we, um, you know, we ultimately did sort of a kind of, I guess, I mean, we did three trials and the, you know, the first lesson we learned was that, was that we were excluding people from our post-exposure prophylaxis trial because they were sick. And so they were, it was sort of, they're already symptomatic. And so by the time they got the medicine or by the time that they, um, you know, they filled out the survey. They were, and so we rapidly pivoted and, and expanded to an, an early treatment trial as well. And so it was sort of both post-exposure prophylaxis and and or early treatment. And so that we had a, a good idea on. Um, and that started just a few days later. Um, the issue of diagnostics was still a problem. And so I think that's still a problem that just a, for an early treatment trial, 
or post-exposure prophylaxis, you, you probably need to get the medicine to people as soon as possible to alter the disease course. Because if you give you know people some sort of medicine a week into the disease course, like they probably their course is already set. And so trying to get things as quickly as possible, you know, we we took some sacrifices and and um, you know for our early treatment trial, we enrolled people either who had a PCR positive diagnosis, which was great, um, or if they had a contact who was PCR positive. So if you had a you know your spouse or your house, someone you live with in the household or your work was PCR positive and that was your exposure, and you didn't have a test or your test was pending, we took those people as well. And so that was um, that was a good idea because still today, like the turnaround time for testing is two or three days. And so in a good situation, sometimes even longer. Um, and so I had a friend of mine actually recently, and I won't say the state, but I referred um, them to... Um, uh, was it the Act Two or Act Three? I forget which what the what the number system is now. But basically, one of these outpatient treatment trials for for monoclonal antibody, and her and her, her spouse was sick, and she had two or three uh, kids of hers were sick and had positive tests, and she wasn't sick yet. And I was like, well, you should enroll in this trial because like monoclonal antibodies probably work, and they probably work early. So if you get sick, like you should you should totally do it. And so I told her like the day before she got sick, like here's the contact, like she got the consent form stuff. And so then, like, the next day, predictably, she got sick, unfortunately. And, um, you know, she went to get, you know, they're like, but they don't actually do the testing. You know, their, their turnaround testing was, you know, as PCR, so it's a couple of days. So, like, oh, go to go to XYZ commercial pharmacy chain um, and get a rapid test, which is a lot of flow assay. And so she was negative because a lot of flow assays aren't quite as good as PCR, as people know. But they're, you know, they're reasonable. Um, and so it was negative, so they couldn't enroll her. And they're like, well, and that was, like, on a... Thursday and then you know time goes on and then she's sick and can't get out of bed can't get get, get repeat tested um, and then it's like the next you know Monday she goes back to get a test and it's like now she's almost out of the enrollment time period to get a PCR and so like ultimately like this person who was told like hey you should enroll this trial a day before they got sick ultimately didn't you know couldn't couldn't meet the enrollment criteria just based on the test turnaround time and so this is like in November and so like to do an early treatment trial is really hard. And so I think one of the lessons for other trials and for FDA potentially as well, that, that, you know, you have to have some like realism in, in life of your enrollment criteria, because you could have perfect enrollment criteria, but then not be able to enroll anyone. And so particularly for outpatient trials, um, you know, for hospitalized trials, you know, you can get test turnaround really quick, you know, usually for most facilities and they're coming to you, but for outpatient trials, it's a little harder. And so, you know, we use this epidemiologic linkage of, you know, either PCR testing themselves or, you know, people who had a household member or, you know, known exposure to a PCR positive person and had compatible symptoms. And so that was something we did. People have criticized us like, oh, you should, you know, why well, you didn't not everyone was PCR positive. Um, but, you know, we did analyze this on the back end of, you know, a priori we had these, this is a subgroup analysis that, you know, if you're PCR positive, you're, you're contact PCR positive, you're enrolled on a pending test. Um, and so those were subgroups that we we had you know predefined um, you know for analysis, and so that was kind of how we did it. And so I think that's one real lesson for people doing outpatient trials that if you're wanting only PCR positive people, which is a really that's a nice you know very clean perfect world scenario, but you know if you're if it takes you know two or three days for them to be symptomatic before they get tested, and the test turnaround time is two or three days. You know, rapidly, people are going to be six, seven days before they enroll in any early, early treatment trial, which is no longer early. 
And so whatever intervention probably is not going to work if it's a week into their illness. So that, that I think is one large lesson. Um, perhaps, but I'm not sure if that's what, what you're looking for, but yeah, you know, well, it certainly sounds like, uh, the trials have to meet the context or so, so called the real world. And as you noted, uh, on the outpatient setting, um, it's uh, very different than say like a inpatient setting where there's anything available at any time, any time of day. So, uh, kind of final question for you as we close up, um, obviously we're still dealing with the pandemic and, um, what are things that need to be done over the coming uh, weeks uh, and months here for the pandemic in terms of clinical trials? Well, I mean, there's, there's many things about the pandemic, but I think, you know, one of the, I mean, we're now, what, eight months into the U.S. pandemic, and the only medicine that has a survival benefit is steroids, which is like, that's it, really? Like, you know, if you think about it, like, okay, there's the monoclonal antibodies that I we think probably do decrease hospitalization if they're given early to zero negative people. But if you look at like what the actual data is, like, like we haven't done a lot, I guess I would say. And so Femdesivir is kind of like a little plus minus and that's a whole conversation on itself. But like steroids are basically the only thing that's really been shown to have a pretty clear survival benefit. And so that's kind of rather disappointing, I guess. And so I think that there need to be more clinical trials and that, you know, who's going to fund that? And so you would think the U.S. government would be interested in that. But if, you know, if if, if people want the perfect gold standard, you know, ideal study that's going to cost $50 million, um, then that may not always happen. And so I would say there needs to be more innovation. And, you know, a lot of the clinical trials have been completed. You know, we did a post, you know, one post-exposure prophylaxis trial that, that we had privately funded. And um, there's been a second one now in the U.S. completed, and that's it. And then... You know, for pre-exposure prophylaxis, we've done one, and NIH, the, uh, obviously, uh, the core network is is doing one. But you know, there's a lot of different other medicines, and so there's there could be other other trials being done. And so, I would say that there definitely there clearly is plenty of patients um, that with COVID, and so you know the ability the ability to um, there's certainly a need, but also like there's just it's I mean there's this leadership that needs to happen of like people like American citizens need to sort of be wanting to be altruistic to volunteer for research studies. Um, and so I think that concept of altruism for sort of the overall societal good is, has not been something that's been really communicated very well by, by leadership um, because that's really beyond even the scientific community that people, um, you know, really need to help the overall cause. And so for all these trials, some of them don't work, um, but very few are harmful. Um, but we still need, you know, unfortunately, we need people to volunteer for research studies and randomized clinical trials to really help generate high quality data. And that, you know, starts with physicians to, to refer patients. It starts with just the attitude in society um, for science and really wanting to help contribute to the overall societal good, even though if you may not yourself, you know, have benefit. And so that's speaks really to altruism, which is really, I think, key for clinical research. Well, that's uh, great and certainly agree with all this. And, you know, extraordinary times uh, take extraordinary efforts and to think differently. And we all have to, to lean in. Mm-hmm. So, uh, David, uh, thanks for uh, joining us on this uh, podcast to kind of share your views and lessons around virtual trials in a time of pandemic. 
And uh, for the rest of you, uh, uh, please join us. Uh, Thanks for joining us this time and join us for our next uh, podcast as we continue uh, to highlight fascinating and informative changes in the research world. Thanks for joining today's NIH Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Let us know what you think by rating this interview on our website, and we hope to see you again on our next Grand Rounds, Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. 